Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. Picture the scene. You're a major league baseball player who is a rookie in his very first game. You have just helped Team USA earn a place in the Summer Olympics when you get word that you have been called to the big leagues. Your parents are present for that game. You brought eight gloves because you don't know what position you're going to be asked to play. And on your very first at-bat, you get a hit. Two hours later, you come to the plate again. It is the bottom of the ninth. Your team is trailing by one run. There is one of your teammates on base, and there are two outs. And you hit a home run that wins the game. If that sounds like a movie writing, you're correct. But it also actually happened to a young man named Luke Williams 11 days ago. And it was my favorite team that walked off the field in shock. Turns out he is the first rookie to ever in his first game hit a home run that wins the game for the Phillies. And they've been around 138 years. And afterwards, when he's talking to reporters, he says this. You can't make this up. It's pretty incredible. It has, it has not been the easiest journey, but it is pretty awesome. It felt like a dream. Dreams are a frequent companion in the human journey. Some of them occur while we are asleep, others while we are wide awake. Some of those dreams are fulfilled and others perish. Some bring us great joy, while others cause us to break out in a cold sweat. Dreams are the unifying thread between the two passages that we have read this morning. And while certainly they do not talk about baseball or a walk-off homer, they lift up amidst far more serious circumstances, the life and death consequences of dreams and their impact upon servants of God. So on this day, we turn to hear those words and what they have to tell us in the hopes of offering some guidance for dreams in our own life. The first is an account found in the Old Testament book of Daniel, which is set 2,500 years ago, 
when the people of God are in Babylonian exile. The title character, along with several of his friends who are now in exile, have been brought into special service for the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And as we saw last week, those four men refused to eat a prescribed royal daily diet. And it could have had devastating consequences, but it all turned out well for them. And at the end of that scene, we are told that Daniel also had the gift to interpret dreams and visions. In our passage today, that ability saves his life. For Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that leaves him sleepless and deeply disturbed. As we all know, some of us remember dreams and some of us do not. I'm typically more in that latter category. The most consistent dreams that I do remember are ones when I show up in church, either here or somewhere else, and learn as I arrive that I'm supposed to preach that day, but I haven't prepared. Or a dream when I come knowing that I'm delivering the sermon and then I encounter all of these kinds of, of setbacks that keep me from getting to the pulpit on time. As one who both likes to plan out what he's going to say ahead of time and who honors punctuality, you can well imagine that both of those dreams wake me up consistently. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, this dream has left him deeply disturbed. It's truly a nightmare. And in the ancient Near East, and particular Mesopotamia, where Babylon was located, it was a frequent understanding that dreams were messages from God. That they would convey words of warning or impending blessing or help with making significant decisions. And thus it was not uncommon for sovereigns in that era to have on their staff individuals designated to interpret dreams. Now maybe Nebuchadnezzar had more dreams than most. Or maybe he valued hearing different possibilities of what those nighttime messages would mean. For we are told that after this particular dream, he calls in the sorcerers, enchanters, the magicians, and the Chaldeans, all to help him understand what this dream means. When they arrive, he says to them, I have had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. And in response, one of the Chaldeans says, long live the king. Tell us your dream and we will interpret it for you. The response sounds like one that's kind of an automatic thing they do in such moments. And yet they quickly understand this is not a typical occasion. For Nebuchadnezzar tells them that they are to, order, to tell him both the dream itself, what it was that he dreamed, and its meaning. Anne says that if they're unable to do both of those things, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be destroyed. He does say that if they're able to do that, that they will receive all kinds of honors, but then repeats the conditions a second time. Well, again, one of the Chaldeans says, well, 
Sovereign, tell us the dream, and, and we will offer you the interpretation. And the king wisely recognizes as a stall tactic, and once again repeats the conditions, and only then does the leader of this literal dream team say, say to him, what you're asking is impossible. No one can do that. Only the gods have that kind of answer, and they are not on earth. And that word so infuriates the king that he orders all of the wise men in the kingdom to be killed. Apparently that includes now Daniel and his three friends. And when that exile learns that the king is so upset, Daniel, who seems to have this ability to speak to royal officials on the side, we saw that occur last week too, he goes to the chief executioner and asks why the king is so upset. And upon learning the answer, amidst circumstances that aren't explained to us, he is granted audience with the king, who for Daniel will give him time. Now, as we will see in the coming weeks, Daniel is able both to name and interpret the nightmare for the king, but we stop on this day with the problem itself. Our New Testament reading offers another moment when a dream plays a key role in Jesus' life. Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers that ever makes mentions of dreams, and he does it six times. Four of those involve Joseph, when he is told in a dream the true paternity of Jesus, when he is told to leave the country with Mary and the infant because Herod will otherwise kill him, when he is told in a dream that it's time to come back from Egypt as Herod had died, and then one final time when he is told where to settle. After that, Matthew alone tells of the visit of the wise men. And he records that after those visitors have delivered the gifts to the infant Jesus, that they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so they return by a different way. Our passage contains the final time Matthew makes any mention of a dream. It comes amidst that painful day we think of as Good Friday. Jesus is being handed back and forth between religious and political leaders, and in the time of our passage, he is now before Pilate, the governor or prefect of Palestine. Matthew tells us that there was this tradition in that era that the governor is a goodwill gesture would free one prisoner since it was the Passover and he wanted to keep the locals happy. And so on this particular day, he suggests to the crowd that he either release Jesus or Barabbas, a known insurrectionist. And after making that suggestion, he gets this message from his wife. who says, have nothing to do with this innocent man. For I have suffered greatly because of a dream about him. Pilate doesn't respond to his wife in that moment. And instead, he turns back to the crowd, again puts the choice before them. And once they announce their decision, he makes this public gesture of washing his hands before them to say, I am innocent of this man's blood. And then he hands Jesus off to be crucified. Now, in Matthew, all those dreams 
clearly are meant to represent God's leading. But between those two scenes, there are other things that we find in common. In both of them, there is a troubling dream that has life and death consequences. In both of them, we see political leaders acting in troubling ways. And in both, there is this implication, at least, that God has something to do with the dream. There are differences between the two. As we will see with Daniel, that dream of Nebuchadnezzar actually predicts the future, whereas in the case of Pilate's wife, that dream speaks the truth in a moment when her husband has a key decision to make. And yet in both of those scenes, too, what we have is someone who is outside the decision-making realm who offers a key word. Daniel is a Jewish exile who promises to interpret a dream that the court officials cannot. Pilate's wife is a Gentile woman who speaks the truth about Jesus, even though Jewish officials in that moment are ready to put him to death. Both of them lived in different eras, but both of them speak a word of truth about God's intention. Given that, it seems to me that there are some clues for how we best respond to dreams in our lives too. I'm no expert in interpreting dreams. And so if you're looking for that kind of insight, I encourage you to check with others I would say to you as well that my hunch is that the vast majority of dreams are not from God. I'm convinced that God still can, in fact, speak to us through a dream. And maybe there have been moments in your life when you have found that you responded to that kind of leading and it turned out to be just the right thing. If so, I celebrate that with you and yet still believe the vast number of the dreams that we have are nothing more than the work of a very active subconscious or maybe even a reaction to that night's dinner. It says to me, the way then that we seek to respond to those messages whether nocturnal or one that had been gained during the day, whether they are our dreams or someone else, is to test that message against what we know to be true about God. For does that dream call for a response of love and justice? Does that dream seek the best in us or bring people together? Does that dream call upon our gifts in ways that allow our life and the world around us to move closer to God's intention. If the dream doesn't have any of those characteristics, I think we can safely know it did not come from God. On the other hand, even if all of those pieces can be checked off as we respond to dreams in our world, we can't be sure 
that in fact it originated with God, and yet it seems to me that when there is that kind of interconnection, we can act upon the dream in a way that we know it will bring honor to God. On Friday, federal employees in our country had an unexpected day off. It came about because on Thursday of last week, President Biden signed into law a new federal holiday. Over the course of that week, in an unusually bipartisan glimpse of Congress at work, both houses passed the resolution by overwhelming margins. And thus it was a few days ago that the 11th federal holiday was created, uh, Juneteenth. As some of you are aware, that holiday recalls a moment on June 19th, 1865, when a Union general named George Granger, Gordon Granger, rode into Galveston, Texas, and gathered the people around and shared the news of the Emancipation Proclamation. It had been two and a half years since the president had issued that decree, applying only to the states in rebellion against the Union at the time. It had been six months since Congress had approved the 13th Amendment that would ban slavery in the rest of the states, it had been two months prior to the time that Granger speaks that the war had ended and Lincoln had died, but none of that information had yet reached Galveston, Texas. And so when General Granger read those words, It meant for the quarter million enslaved people in Texas who had not previously gotten the message, they were instantly freed. And this great celebration broke out. The following year, on that day, June 19th, was the first observance of that declaration. And in the years that have followed, it continued to be celebrated with parades and picnics, with food that always includes red colors to symbolize slavery and fireworks. In 1980, Texas became the first to declare Juneteenth a state holiday. Well, at the ceremony on Thursday, the president, of course, was surrounded by congressional leaders and and also by a 94-year-old African-American woman named Opal Lee. In learning more about her story, I heard that as a native Texan, she had always grown up celebrating Juneteenth. And on her 10th birthday, white people in her community burned down the family's house. For 40 years, that educator committed her energies to a local county group that was overseeing the observance of Juneteenth until in 2016, As an 89-year-old woman, she decided she wanted to make sure that celebration spread across the country. It was already being observed, but she wanted it as a federal holiday. 
And so she began on that first year gathering people from her church and her pastors to walk two and a half miles, symbolizing the two and a half years it had taken the news to reach Galveston. The next day, they walked two and a half more miles. The goal was to walk the 1,400 miles from Fort Worth, Texas to Washington, D.C. In the years following, other communities began to start a walk like that. It now spread across the country. It continued during the pandemic. And then on Thursday, Opal Lee, who became known as the grandmother of Juneteenth, was president to, president to watch it become law. In her Instagram post, an Instagram post from a 94-year-old woman tells you something about her spirit. But in her post, she said this, Wow, I am beyond excited to see my lifelong dream and mission of making Juneteenth a national holiday. After years of preaching the importance of Juneteenth as a unifier for our country, I'm thrilled to see our country finally recognize it as the national holiday it should be. Thank you to everyone who helped us achieve this incredible milestone to spread unity, love, and equality. Now, let's celebrate freedom from the 19th of June until the 4th of July. To which I would simply suggest that God's dream is that it lasts much longer. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for the ways that you continue to speak, for the certainty of your leading and sustaining presence, and for the ways that you inspire us by dreams. We pray that we will grow in our understanding of where it is that you would have us to take those visions, that we might yet draw closer to your intention for our lives and for this world that you love. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.